we're working through a section, kind of taking bits and pieces of it, uh, part of 1 John chapter 4 and going into 1 John chapter 5. Thank you, Daniel. And um, this morning, do you guys remember what I told you what we were going to cover this morning? That's okay. I don't, I don't remember either. Where were we last week? Larry, do you remember? No, I'm kidding. Uh, well, that would be scary, wouldn't it? Uh, although, for those of you who've been around on Wednesday night, I've told that story. If you used to go to a Bible study, and the guy would ask that question every week, and it was like, never mind. Uh, First John chapter 5. Let's back up to verse 20 of chapter 4. Actually, I'm tempted to back up even more. Yeah, I'm going to go to verse 12, chapter 4. Sorry, Phil. Verse 12, chapter 4, and we'll read into uh, chapter 5. No one has seen God at any time. And if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we, are, uh, that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar. And he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him is begotten. Uh, Everyone who loves him who begot, let me back that up again. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who was begotten of him. By this we know the love of the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. And this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So, Father, I ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning concerning this passage as we continue to extract your teaching from it. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Two weeks ago, we we looked at this uh, idea of what it meant to love others and having the love of God being... uh, uh, not only in us, but being expressed through us and how important uh, it was to, to, if we are truly people who love God, then we are truly going to love others. 
And, and then last week we looked at this concept of what it meant to be begotten. And this idea of, of begotten refers to this one only original unique uh, relationship that Jesus has with the Father. And we kind of unpacked that. We talked about the deity of Christ, which is important. I think very important. And, and we're going to continue along that vein this morning as in, in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So we have, we have here in the book of John, here in chapter 5, uh, if, if whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, uh, earlier in, cha- uh, I think it was chapter 2, um, where it says that he who believes in God or, uh, also was one who believes that Jesus has come in the flesh. And also, as we read earlier uh, in chapter 4, uh, whoever, uh, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so you, it, you can't just pick one, and, and you, but you have to really take these, these three uh, expressions as a whole. Jesus came in the flesh, he is the Son of God, and he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So I'm going to use the word Christ and Messiah interchangeably because, as most of you know, the word Christ is the English translation of the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word. Uh, I just got about, had it on the tip of my tongue and forgot. Okay, um, uh, Mashiach, the Mashiach, which is the Hebrew word for uh, it literally means anointed. That's what the word really means. It means the anointed one. And, and so, um, and of course, we translate that word into English, Messiah. Messiah, Christ, it means the same thing. Um, so when we, when we read here that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, uh, it's saying that whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah or Jesus is the Mashiach or that Jesus is the anointed one, uh, that person is uh, then born of God. So uh, again, it's it's more than just, I believe, a mental assent or mental uh, uh, agreement toward what John is declaring. You have to have some context about this, and that's I've, I've talked about this before. If you haven't noticed, this letter is heavy on the nature of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Another word for that would be Christology, which is the study of who Christ is. Um, and, and very heavy about declaring who Jesus is. And important that we get that right and understand this. And so what we have here in the Old Testament um, is rather interesting because you, you have this, this expression of the anointed ones. And it, it, it was a f- word that was used to express basically anyone uh, who was designated uh, by God for a particular task. Anyone who was designated by God for a particular p- task. And, and we see this in the book of Leviticus. Um, we see this in the first Kings. We see it in first Chronicles. We see this also in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 45, references whom? Do you know off the top of your head? A guy named Cyrus, whom the Lord declares as his anointed one, um, who would be the one who would make the proclamation to go and restore uh, the city of Jerusalem after the nation of 
uh, Judah had been brought into captivity into Babylon. So in, in its very generic sense, the anointed one uh, is the one who is designated as a person anointed or set aside for a particular task. And we see this in the Old Testament primarily with two different types of offices. One would be the priesthood. The other would be the kings. And what would happen in both instances, you see this in, in the book of Leviticus, you also see this in First Samuel with the anointing of David, is that they would take oil. Oil is a representation in the Bible of whom? Of the Holy Spirit. It's a representation of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And so they would take oil and they would pour it over the person, uh, symbolizing that they would be covered, uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit. They would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so you see this happening uh, with priests, uh, Exodus 28, Leviticus 4, again, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, also, you see this happening with kings. And so eventually... David is established, 2 Samuel chapter 7. He is given this promise of this, this one who will come from his, uh, uh, his offspring, who will be one who will rule uh, forever. And it's an interesting prophecy to, to read it. We won't take time to look at it this morning. But it's kind of an interwoven prophecy, uh, first describing his son Solomon, who will build the temple, and then later... He's actually describing the one who will come after Solomon, Jesus Christ, who will come and he will, uh, uh, one day, uh, he will rule and reign on Mount Zion, on David's throne, uh, and, and he will be the one who will establish his kingdom. So David was given this promise that the Messiah would come through him. Um, what's interesting about this as well, we looked at this last week. I'm gonna, I want to turn there again. Just briefly, in the book of Psalms, chapter 2. Psalm, chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? This is verse 1. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah. That would be an accurate translation here. Um, And the kings say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in deep displeasure. And then we have here a quote from the Lord. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And we looked at verse 7 last week. I'm not going to go ahead and look at that again uh, this week, this idea of today I've begotten you. And again, we looked at where uh, Paul talks about this was the resurrection of Jesus Christ when the Son was begotten of the Father. And so you have this mention of the anointed one in, in, um, in Psalm chapter 2, where he will set his holy king on, uh, on, uh, on Mount 
on the hill of Zion. Um, so uh, that became kind of a, a, a benchmark passage that the Jews grabbed a hold of in, in this hope and, and this promise of the Messiah. We see this also in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. We won't take a time and look at that. But it, it talks about the Messiah being cut off, but not for himself. And, um, and so there was this hope that was beginning to be generated amongst the Jews, particularly in rabbinical Judaism, this hope that the Messiah would come and deliver them. Now, they had an incomplete view of what the Messiah would do. They, uh, as the years went by, prior to the time that Jesus arrived, there was already an expectation that the Messiah would be a political deliverer. And this was especially true in the, in the time before uh, Jesus coming to the earth uh, because that was the time that the Romans had taken over and they were expecting the Messiah to come and to boot out the Romans and to establish a rule of his reign on earth in Jerusalem. And, and there was a lot of... Uh, extra-biblical writings and musings about who the Messiah would be and what he would do. Uh, even we, they found in, in Qumran, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found uh, writings where there was this idea that there were two Messiahs. There was the suffering servant Messiah that was described in the book of Isaiah, chapters 52 and chapters 53, and, and so that would be known as the Messiah ben Joseph. Ben in Hebrew means son. So the Messiah, the son of Joseph, because remember Joseph was one who went through an incredible amount of suffering so that God could position him to do what? Save the people. And when the famine came, everybody moved to Egypt. And so there was this idea that there was, the Messiah would be the Messiah ben Joseph and and. There was also this idea based on 2 Samuel chapter 7, based on what I read here in Psalm chapter 2, was there was the Messiah ben David. In other words, he would be the conquering king. What they did not understand was that Jesus, the Messiah, would fulfill both of those roles. So they, I used to be an air traffic controller and we had a saying because it was radar, right? So we had a saying that, somebody would be working their traffic and we would be concerned whether or not they had the picture. Do they have the picture? Are they, are they paint, do they really understand what's going on on that radar scope in front of them? Do they see these, these two planes about to collide? Do they have the picture, right? And I remember one time we were talking about a trainee and, and, and we asked, well, did he have the picture? And, and his trainer said, well, sort of, but it was a little fuzzy on the edges, but he kind of had the picture. So anyway, you know, but that was kind of where the Jews were. They had the picture kind of. It was kind of fuzzy around the edges. And, and so, um, nonetheless, there was this expectation that the Messiah would come. And, and so, in the book of John, uh, in, in the early chapters, uh, when, when Jesus is calling his disciples, what did they say? We found the Messiah. They were telling each other, we have found the Messiah. And then in, in John chapter 4, when Jesus is with the woman at the well, I'll turn to it real quick. 
and he's talking with this woman uh, who is a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans did not have a real good understanding of the Scriptures, and they had some real uh, um, real aberrant off-the-wall off kind of ideas. And, and so the woman that he's speaking to, John chapter 4, verse 25, I'm here, I'll just read it to you. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So here, in front of this woman, he's declaring himself to be the Messiah. Often, if you remember in the Gospels, in Jesus' ministry, when they would declare him to be the son of David, Incidentally, the son of David was understood as a term that was used for the Messiah. Remember, Messiah Ben David, the son of David. When they declared him as the son of David, what did he normally tell them to do? You guys remember? Don't tell anybody. And I believe this was a matter of timing for a lot of different reasons that I don't want to take the time to get into this morning but it was a matter of, of, of timing that Jesus had to not only fulfill his ministry on earth, but I think there was even a timing of him going to the cross. Since he went to the cross at the time of Passover. And, and so he declared himself to, to be the Messiah. Now, from here in John, uh, 1 John, I actually want to take another uh, look at another passage that uh, in the book of Matthew that, that kind of uh, gives us some more details about this, about Jesus being the Messiah. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, I'm probably going to start around um, verse 41. Okay, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And He had just silenced the Sadducees. You know the difference between Sadducees and Pharisees. They're two different religious groups within Israel. I don't want to go into the full detail of that. But they were also rivals. Pharisees were the very strict, ascetic uh, conservatives. I guess I am going into this. And the Sadducees were the the liberals. Okay, essentially. That would be one way to look look at them. And, of course, you know the story. You know the joke. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, and that's why they were sad, you see. But anyway, um, I always got to go there. So Jesus has just silenced them. So the Pharisees want to one-up Sadducees, right? So the score is Jesus one, Sadducees zero, right? And uh, the Pharisees start to contend with Jesus. So in verse 41... It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. So he goes on the offensive, saying, what do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Okay. Now, you have to remember here that their answering of the Messiah being the son of David is technically correct. The problem was not with the answer. The problem was with the context behind the answer. Does that make sense? In other words, 
they can say, yeah, based on 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, the Messiah is the son of David. Incidentally, Psalm chapter 2, and I didn't, I didn't point this out, but it's very obvious to me in Psalm chapter 2 that the anointed is also divine. It's not talking about a mere human. The, the king that God sets on his holy hill uh, is divine. And, but nonetheless, the Pharisees probably did not see the Messiah as a um, divine person. Although even in rabbinical Judaism at that time, there was significant disagreement, okay? So sometimes it's, 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 it's not fair and it's not always helpful to completely try to put the theology of the, of the Jews in the first century in one box because there were several boxes, uh, several different uh, means by which they practice their faith. Does that make sense? So nonetheless, they answered to him and they said to him, that the Messiah is the son of David. Okay. So, this is where Jesus pulls a fast one. And he says to them, verse 43, How then does David, in the spirit, call him Lord? Call who Lord? Okay, we're going to get there. Saying, the Lord, now notice that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So that is the proper name of God. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. He finally got that final word in and basically trumped them here um, in this discussion, or you could call it an argument. Okay, so what, verse 44 is taken from Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. We could turn there... Um, but I think it's right here in front of us in Matthew. It's the Septuagint version. So it was understood in rabbinical Judaism that Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4, was, uh, I don't know how to say this other than very messianic. In other words, it was, it was full in, of descriptions of the Messiah. And it says, the Lord... That is, Yahweh says to my Lord. Now, notice that the second Lord is not a capital L, o, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. Because in the Hebrew, it would say, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Adonai. Okay, he's using the word Adonai, which means Lord and Master. All right? It's not a proper name for God. Does that make sense? God, the Father, says to my master, that would be one way to interpret this, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus pulls this out because, okay, okay, the Pharisees have already agreed, number one, the Messiah is the son of David, all right? That's an agreed upon fact. Jesus believes it, 
Of course, he knows that he wrote the book, right? The Pharisees believe it. So then, why did David, in the spirit, so that means this Psalm 110 is divinely inspired, it's God-breathed, why did David, in the spirit, proclaim prophetically, Yahweh, my God, said to my master, sit at my right hand. Incidentally, the place of the right hand is a place for divinity. It's not a place for a mere human to sit. The Jews understood that. The Jews, second of all, understood that Psalm 110 is messianic. Who is the Messiah? He's the son of David. Who is David referring to here when he says, the Lord says to my Lord? Who is my Lord? Uh, Who is David referring to when he says my Lord? He's referring to the Messiah. David also has been given a promise that the Messiah would come from his lineage. So, why is this important? I think so far you're following me, right? In Judaism, in Jewish culture, you would never, 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 never call your son, your grandson, your great-grandson, your great-great-grandson. You get the point. You would never call one of your offspring Lord, Master, Ruler. You would never call them Adonai. Wouldn't happen. It was completely out of place. And particularly with David, who, David, if you've read First Kings, David is the example, even in 2 Kings, David is the example by which every other king of Judah is compared. It is known as the Davidic dynasty. And Matthew writes about it in the genealogy of Jesus. Where David excuse me, Jesus is a direct descendant of David. And because Jesus is a descendant of David, David would never call him Lord except for what? Except for what? Except for he would be divine. And the Jews knew that. And they understood in this question, that Jesus had them over a barrel. Now, they still might have been wrestling with whether, and, and again, they, Jesus was put to death for, among other things, blasphemy. Now, he didn't blaspheme. They accused him of blasphemy because he, being a man, made himself out to be whom? God. They understood that the Messiah was some type of a divine figure, possibly. Some of them may have, some of them may not have. But what David is saying here, what Jesus is referring to, is that God the Father, or Yahweh, 
And Yahweh can be defined as God the Father. Yahweh can also be defined as the three-in-one, the triunity of God. But God, Yahweh, says to David's Adonai, sit at my right hand, the place of honor, the place where the Messiah would come and would sit. Uh, So, If the Messiah was merely a human offspring of David, David would have never referred to him as Adonai. So when we go back to 1 John chapter 5 and we read, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God. Whoever who who believes that Jesus is the one whom Yahweh has said, sit at my right hand, is born of God. So it's not just a mental agreement with titles but it's understanding the substance behind the titles. Does that make sense? The son of David, who will reign on and sit and reign forever, is none other than Jesus Christ. The Pharisees had no answer to this question in Matthew 22 because they did not want to confess that the Messiah would, in fact, be from David, which makes him what? If he's born of David, that makes him what? Human. But David, recognizing him as his Adonai, Lord, which points only to one thing. He's recognizing Jesus as a divine as well. So it's Psalm 110, verse 1, is an incredible verse for us to have more meat and more teeth into the argument that Jesus claimed to not only be human, but divine. 100% human, 100% God. How does that work? I don't know, but God can overrule all the natural laws of nature to do what? What was so important of the incarnation? What was so important of the incarnation? We talked about this actually last week. Because the Lamb of God needed to be without blemish and without spot. No mere human would work. But Jesus comes in the flesh and he takes on the form of, Philippians tells us, the form of what? Servant. Takes on the form of a servant. And he becomes obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and at the name of Of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. Because the Lord 
has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So he is currently at the right hand of God, waiting for the right time when that right time comes. I know that a lot of you have your own ideas about when that right time should be, but the Lord will return when he's good and ready and not until then. How's that? And the Bible has told us to do business until he comes. Because there is a process that God is going through where he is making the enemies of the Messiah into his footstool. Because every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Adonai. Kyrios in the Greek. To the glory of God the Father. He comes in humanity. Fully divine. Because he came to pay the ransom for each of us. Matthew or Mark. 1045, that the Son of Man comes not to serve, but to be served. Excuse me, not to be served, but to serve. I'm surprised no one didn't catch me on that one. Okay, somebody did. Good. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the question of that, of understanding all of this, of understanding that Jesus Christ is born of God, of understanding that Jesus has come in the flesh, is understanding that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, God the Son. How does that, how does that inform how we live as Christians? Now, if you're going to say, well, I just want to thank you for that. Well, that's great. I think that's, a, that's, that's not only a great place to start, that's a great place to end. And that's a great place in the middle of, of living a life of a heart of thanksgiving. But, but how does that inform your Christianity outside of Sunday morning, sitting here listening to me? Because love has been perfected, verse 17 of chapter 4, among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he was, so are we in the world. I'm not going to really embellish that, but I do want you to take that one home. And I want you to think that through. If we believe these things, and I believe that we do believe these things, and I believe these things, I believe you believe these things. It should have an effect on how you live. How you behave. How you act. Because as he is... Notice it says is. It's present tense, right? Not as he was, but as he is. 
so are we in this world. So we are his hands, we are his feet, we are his eyes. We are his voice. See, the incarnation didn't just stop with Jesus coming in the flesh because the spirit of God dwells in us. We are, in a sense, a form of that. That's what John is really saying here. That we are the hands, the feet, the eyes, and the voice of Jesus. Because he is at the right hand of God. Waiting for the Father to make his enemies into his footstool. And the Father and the Son have sent his spirit to dwell in us. To continue the work uh, that Jesus began in the Gospels. See, in reality, guys, it's really all about the Gospels. The Gospels... The gospel is more than just the plan of salvation, although without the plan of salvation, there is no gospel, right? But do we live the gospel? If we believe these things, do we live the gospel? Do we express the gospel in how we live? So that's a challenging question that I think, again, I'm going to actually, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to leave that with you, but I want you to wrestle with that one this week. How do you live the gospel? So, Lord, we thank you for your your great faithfulness to us. Lord, we confess that you are the Christ. Lord, we confess that you've come in the flesh. Lord, we confess that you are the Son of God. We confess that you are the son of David. We confess you as our Messiah, as our Lord, as our Savior, as our Redeemer. Lord, you have done an incredible work of salvation just in, in, the, in our own lives. We pray, Lord, that through your Spirit that you would enable us, empower us to be the conduit of your love for the world. Because we know that you so love the world that you gave your one and only unique son and that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We pray that you would empower us this, this week by your Holy Spirit. Help us to really chew on these things and, and, and to not only just believe these things intellectually, but that they would go down into the depths of our souls and inform how we live, how we act, how we speak, where we spend our time. Continue to do that work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you guys.